0: Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History Podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 Festival, Dan Jones, best-selling chronicler of the Middle Ages, writer, historian and TV presenter, talks about his book Crusaders with Trinity College Dublin historian Dr Conor Costick, who has himself written about the Crusades. Recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on 19th of October 2019.
1: So I'd like to start by thanking the organisers. I've been uh, looking forward to this ever since I heard you were going to be coming, and it's uh, it's terrific to, uh, to chance to, to chat to you. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about the the art of writing history, uh, and then we'll hone in on the Crusades, and then there'll be time as well for you to ask questions to Dan. So, um, But before I do, I've got to congratulate uh, Dan on the book. It's a fantastic achievement. There's, you know there's a lot of reading to synthesize 500 years story of the Crusades That's, and, and to synthesize it at a very uh, high scholarly level is, is absolutely fantastic achievement but it's also beautifully written and I just want to just uh, let the audience uh, appreciate that those who haven't had a chance to get the book already so Dan has just explained to the reader that um, the first Crusaders engaged in acts of cannibalism and he uh, then carries on in the following way. As the crusaders ground through Syria towards the Lebanese coast, with crosses before them and human fat congealing in their beards, a poet called Muzi composed verses for the Seljuk sultan Burkiyuk in Ishafan. He implored the king to be revenged in the name of the Arab rebellion on the Latins who had defiled Muslim lands. You should kill those accursed dogs and wretched creatures The wolves who have sharpened their teeth and claws, he wrote. You should take the Franks prisoner and cut their throats with jeweled, life-devouring, blood-spurting daggers. You should make polo balls of the Franks' heads in the street and polo sticks from their hands and feet. Yet the more that the accursed Franks stormed, slaughtered, tortured, massacred, enslaved, and ate their way through the Dar al-Islam, the further receded any realistic chance of playing ball games with their skulls. So it's really entertaining as well as scholarly. And that, that brings me to my, my first question. So one is writing history. And you're very aware that the formulations you're going to put in your book are contested. Hmm. Did the Crusades actually... Were they cannibals? That's not a given. There's a debate around it. Mm-hmm. So I find you get two types of history book. One where the the author puts in lots of caveats mm-hmm. and, you know, qualifies everything. And the other way, where, where the author just grasps the nettle, says, right, I'm going to tell it this way, and does so. And I would say you're the latter kind, mm-hmm. but perhaps you, you'd share with the audience uh, the process of how do you cope with the, the, the ambiguity? End
0: notes. I mean, that's the, as, as simple as you can put it. Um, I find most history books incredibly dull and I don't mean to be rude but it's true and I've as as I've gone on over like the last 10 or 12 years of writing I've I've become increasingly determined to write the sort of history book that I want to read which is one that fuses um, the sort of narrative structures and techniques from historical fiction and screenwriting with the research methodology of of history so that you can read them so they read with like, you you know, you have the story structures from fiction. Um, and endnotes are your friend in that mm. respect because you put your workings in the back of the book. So every sentence where there is something contested, I would, I hope I can stand by this in, in this book and, and every other one I've written, Um, you'll be able to go trace this in the endnotes and the, if it's particularly contested, there'll be a little sort of, you know, we're not sure about this, uh, but you'll be able to go and read it read the sources yourself, um, whether they're online or in libraries or whatever. And I think that that's how I have to work, because the minute you start putting caveats in, that that nice kind of narrative flow that you've you've just sort of demonstrated um, collapses and the reader is lost and falls asleep or puts the book down. Um, And I don't think, of course, that all historians should write like this. I think that 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 would not be the right way to write... uh, scholarly articles but we you know my place in the sort of ecosystem of writing history is write books that ordinary people can read yeah. and enjoy uh, and rely upon and I think that there's a there's a big part of the job as the writer is to say trust me yeah now you have to earn that trust because if if you know that I could name what I won't uh historians who are much who are sloppy and and give you the appearance of um you know of doing the work where they actually haven't but you know you have to earn that trust and keep that trust but once you've got the trust you as you are you know you your job is to make this stuff entertaining and, and related to that
1: is um i think a belief that your audience is sophisticated yeah so you enter a relationship with the reader where the reader understands this is your opinion your version of it
0: yeah um that's why my name's on the front of the book. You know, I'm, not, I'm not being totally facetious there. You know, there are with, with regard to the Crusades or whatever else I've been writing about, there are, there's a mountain of books that big. W- which one do you pick? Um, you yeah. pick the, the, the person you want to tell that story. Let's talk about that person then. Uh, okay. Because um, absolutely
1: everybody reading a source material reads it differently. Yep. Because you're bringing your background and your insights and your culture, and I find as well... Now that I'm a bit older than when I first started reading, I could read the same text that I read 30 years ago and, goodness me, this is I've missed this, or you know, I, I now see this because life has moved on and I've learned something. So what do you think is in your background that you're bringing to the,
0: the reading of these sources? Um, I've got an eye for the weird and the wonderful, yeah, as, you've, as you've just illustrated. And, uh, and I, I love... Stuff like stories about cannibalism, or uh, when I think it's Godfrey of Bouillon has a fight with a bear mm. in the First Crusade, or uh, when Francis of Assisi goes and meets Al-Kamil, you know, the, the Sultan of Egypt, and offers to convert him to Christianity and, and to, says he's going to walk on fire. I love those kind of weird and wonderful stories. I'm a big fan of anecdotes, jokes, um, humor. Uh, and so I, I try and put all of those, that into the book. I mean, fundamentally, I'm interested in people's stories, and and knitting them together in a way that will teach you, or, or not teach you, that will explain the history in a in a memorable and exciting way. And um, I used to, I don't watch so much television, but I used to watch a lot of television. Uh, I'm I'm interested in popular storytelling tropes and methods. Um, I've made a lot of TV documentaries, which, which are towards like uh, mm. the, the dramatic. And I try and bring all that to the writing of history um, in a way that, as I say, you know, as I get older, I'm just more and more trying to write the books that I want to read and yeah. the books I like reading. You know, if I go on holiday in my spare time, I don't, I don't read a lot of history. I read a lot of American hard-boiled detective fiction, and whilst you can't totally marry that form with this material, you can bring some of it in. Yeah. Um, which just
1: backtrack slightly there because mm. so you you read you read some marvellous anecdotes, absolutely brilliant story, but you've a hunch it's not actually true. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: So you want to bring that in, but
0: you, you know uh, the odds are it didn't actually happen that way. What? How would you handle that? Well, let's give it. Let's give an applied example to think through it. So this book starts uh, after the introduction, the first chapter, and the book proceeds with viewpoint chapters from individuals uh, who were involved in the Crusades. The first chapter is about Roger, Count of Sicily, because I didn't want to start a book about the Crusades with Urban II giving a sermon at Clermont, and you know it's, it's hackneyed it's been done too much. So let's find somewhere else the Crusade starts. Well, Ibn al athir the great. Iraqi chronicler of the 13th century, tells a story about Roger, count of Sicily. He says, if you want to understand the beginning of the Crusades, here's how it happened. Roger, Norman, you know, from Normandy, sort of same clan as William the Conqueror, uh, conquers Sicily, then a cousin, Baldwin, we don't really know who this is, sends ambassadors down saying, can I use Sicily as a launch pad to attack the Islamic cities of North Africa? And Baldwin doesn't say anything to uh, these ambassadors, he just lifts up his leg and farts at them, farts in their general direction, if you think of Monty Python. Um, no of course you can't but if you want to go and attack Muslims in an important city I've heard there's loads in Jerusalem okay that's a fantastic story it's almost certainly not true (laughs) but so you have to use it carefully Um, and in some ways this is this is you know without wanting to quote that ghastly man who's who's prime minister of of the United Kingdom have cake and eat cake Uh, you tell the story and then you unpick it. So you unpick the Ibn al story and say, well, can we trust this? Who's this Baldwin? We don't know. What's this referring to? Could be the 11, uh, 1087 attack on Madia. It's not quite clear. Did Roger really lift his leg and fart? Probably that's just Ibn al trying to make all, all Normans and Franks, by extension, sound coarse and stupid and dirty and disgusting and horrible and thick and awful. God curse them, brackets. Um, but in unpicking that, you say, then why is he telling us this story? What's this driving at? Let's get another layer. Who really was Roger and where did he come from? So you introduce the story. You don't say this is gospel truth. You, you, you highlight the obvious inaccuracies. But then you, you go another layer. So this is it's sort of narrative craft. And you, look, the, the question is, do you leave this story out completely mm. because you have doubts yeah. about it? For me, no. For the following reasons. It's funny it looks good on the page. It grabs the attention and it draws you into the story. Come on, I'll tell you. I'll tell you something cool. Yeah. Um, and that, as you know, to return to what we've been saying a few minutes ago, that's my job. That's where I sit in this in this world. Is let me tell you some weird, and wonderful stories. I'll give you the. I'll tell you, if, like, to what degree we can trust them. But once you're in, like, it's much easier to get someone to listen to a story about the Crusades if you tell them a story about someone farting at somebody <laughs> than it is if you start with. Once there was a Pope and he gave a sermon, I mean, like, no, let, let's, let's make this exciting. And, and like I say, that's, that's, what, that's what I do, I guess.
1: Now, in the big scheme of writing about the Crusades, um, really the, the early works are quite critical of them, hostile to them. See them as, as mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Gibbon especially, mm-hmm. seeing them as a, a rampaging, materialist, greedy... Knights using their religion as a, a pretext. Yep. And then the pendulum has swung so much so, so that in the late 20th century, you have uh, people like the late uh, Jonathan Riley Smith mm-hmm. uh, or Thomas Madden in America mm. saying that they uh, we shouldn't see them in that light. We should see them as um, spiritual people above all, with a fervent commitment to their religion. So broadly speaking on this spectrum of the Crusades are awful, the Crusades are uh, admirable in their own way, but where would you locate yourself?
0: Um, I don't know if I have... I, I will answer your question, I, but I don't know if we have to make that value judgment to be interested in them. Okay, set that aside. I'm prob- I, I probably started out closer to Riley Smith. I mean, in fact, Riley Smith supervised me 20 years ago, very briefly, Um, and I probably started out... Because I I, I was a medievalist, right? The thing about Runciman and Gibbon Mm. was that they were interested in the Roman Empire. And the Crusades spell the end of the Roman... They're they're like the death knell of the Roman Empire uh, in Byzantium. Um, And so if you come from that direction, of course this whole whole thing looks like uh, iconoclasm and disaster. If you're a medievalist and, and you come from like the direction of the 13th or 14th century and you start to see how well actually you know although this was this was a sort of heinous series of vicious wars uh, there was some um movement of ideas and and it's sort of a civilizing effect through the back door of the crusades and you know people say well we've got better mathematics thanks to the crusade right Um, then you tend to look more favorably upon them i probably moved during the writing of this Mm. book from the medievalist. Well, this is a sort of interesting thing. The regrettable, but uh, with some, you know, advantages to closer to the sort of Runciman and Gibbon model of what a colossal waste of life and time over something so stupid. And and you know, you uh, particularly when you and I can pinpoint exactly when that 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 happened in the writing of that book, and that's when I got to the Fourth Crusade. Mm. So the Fourth Crusade. Uh, without you know telling the entire story gets taken over by the venetians who built the boats and turns into just a sort of plundering raid uh, against venetian targets ending at constantinople when constantinople you know the great christian city of, of the eastern mediterranean is burned half to the ground and plundered and if you to go to venice today you still see those hmm. brass horses in St marks basilica that were nicked from constantinople during the fourth crusade you get to that point and think we're through the looking glass completely, and this was, uh, this was totally nuts. And, and maybe we'll come on to this in this next bit in a bit more detail, but the way that the Crusades still linger with us in the world today and are still sort of fetishized by both the alt-right and the Islamist sort of extreme, Islamist, terrorist, al-Qaeda, offshoot, ISIS uh, nutters is frightening, and, you know, it would be much better for us all if they didn't have that tool in their, yeah. their box.
1: Yeah, so you know, and I would be I would be very uh, critical myself of the crusading project. Um, but when you try to sort of dig right down into their own mindset and their own goals, yeah. you can't help but uh, appreciate that there are acts of bravery, there are acts of heroism, there are unbelievable uh, stories. I mean the first crusade to travel 2,000 kilometres and so many peasants are going on this crusade and so many uh, women um, escaped serfs with nothing and maybe 10% of them survived to the end, you know. So you can't help but getting drawn in and, and involved and even if the overall project uh, you'd be quite critical
0: of, you could still respect certain decisions, certain acts of heroism. Yeah, of course. And like... Uh, that's what draws me to this subject, because you have those two things in tension together. The, um, the absurd theological gymnastics that one has to go through to justify crusading, in which you can, with a straight face, say that we are going to kill other human beings in the name of Jesus Christ. Like, so, wait, what? Like... Is that not the last thing Jesus Christ wanted you to do? Is that the thing that he actually told you not to do? Anyway, so you can like that-the the weirdness and the, the sort of madness of that, intention with what you're describing, the incredible acts of individual sort of heroism or valor or or just the, 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 the sheer br- or the bravery or the endurance. Those two things put together make for an exciting and an epic mm. story. And that's what, I go, that's what I go looking for in writing books. Is um, Because if this was a story in which they were all doing a good thing and the good, good guys won, it's boring, right? You, know? uh, you, you have to have an, these elements of, um, of, I suppose, dramatic kind of paradox and tension within the story in order to keep it interesting, in order to make it a, the, the sort of material that I want to write a book about. And uh, Did you find yourself becoming particularly sympathetic to anyone? Yeah, you fall in love with characters. Yeah. You, you fall in love with characters. Um, even, you know, descri- talking about the Fourth Crusade, Enrico Dandolo, you know, the do- yeah. 90-year-old yeah. blind Dodger of Venice who leads this crusade, awful as what they do is slash was. Uh, this is an amazing character. This is the sort of character that that is like manna from heaven to a writer, that you have... 90-year-old blind leader of this, this Mediterranean republic who's at the prow of the ship as they're kind of sailing towards Constantinople that's just the, what well, the reason that you know we've seen that depicted so many times in art is because it's an amazing scene and it's something that I I'm you you can't help but uh but fall in love with and um and I've, I in fact that was sort of my goal through the way this book, as I said, is constructed is through these viewpoint chapters. Where yeah. a single character carries you through the story, and so it was like a joy to go right. Let's cast this. Let's go find the yeah. characters I yeah. want to spend time with over the next five or six thousand words. Um,
1: and yeah, that's a very five, no, that's a very good example. It's a great part of the book. Uh, you really, really
0: deliver that well. And, and on the other
1: side, any of the Islamic princes.
0: Uh, um no yes not just the princes um ibn hamdis you know, at the beginning of the story i found this uh you know 24 year old sicilian arab muslim poet uh yeah so one of the trick when you when you write these viewpoint chapters where an individual takes you through the story the handover is key it's like a, running a relay race okay so that if possible the characters should interlock in some way so i wrote the first chapter about sicily with count roger you know kicking the arabs out and and uh, and looking like a sort of heroic character. And now I thought, right, let, now let's flip this on its head. And you start the, I start the second chapter with Ibn Hamdis, a young Sicilian Arab poet who suddenly has his homeland engulfed in war and he has to flee from the place he's grown up and, and lives his entire life in sorrowful regret at being exiled from his homeland, and that that you know the, the Muslims have been you know, defeated in his homeland. And he goes to the Taifa kingdoms of... Spe- and so he's a great vehicle... To take you out of sicily into the taifa kingdoms of southern spain and al andalus and see the beginnings of the reconquista and you strengthen you know his poetry still survives you can you know you can he's quite a good poet he's uh just a a wonderfully sympathetic character so i tried like in putting this book together to concentrate on i hate this word diversity of casting Hmm. um and that means taking characters from all over the spectrum—not just the white Frenchmen with the big beards and the pointy swords, but the Sicilian Arab poets and the Greek princesses and the, you know, Saladin's in there, of course, you know, great Kurdish uh, general who becomes Sultan of Syria and Egypt. Casting was was the main task of putting this book together, and um, as I say, you know, I found all these characters I wanted to hang out. I, you know, I I didn't appreciate it till now that, uh, but there are
1: chapters that are a bit like a thriller. Yes. And I think perhaps, especially the um, politics in Egypt, where there's a sort of race, for, there's a power vacuum developing. And, and I think you, you tell that extremely well, but perhaps you tell the audience a little bit about the, um, you know, how important was, was the control
0: of Egypt and the, and the crisis that developed there. Well, when the Islamic chroniclers and scholars of the, you know, writing in the Middle Ages went to try and explain why the first crusade had been so successful, why these these armies from Western Europe had somehow managed to take Jerusalem and set up four crusader states in greater Syria. They said, the reason is that the Da'al-Islam was fractured and you had, in in greater Syria and Mesopotamia, uh, the Seljuk Empire collapsing into individual little city-states, all of which were at war with one another. That's the Sunni world. In the, the Shiite world in Egypt, you had the, the Fatimid Caliphate, which was rotten to the core. And you say so you had Egypt and Syria at odds. All the Syrian princes at odds and uh, a, a collapsing state within Egypt. Said so it's no wonder the Franks made their way in. The story of the 12th century thereafter is effectively of the... Muslim world of the Near East, the Eastern Mediterranean, Syria and Egypt, and, you know, in modern terms, Lebanon as well, getting their act together, first under Zengi, then under Nur al-Din, and mm. finally under Saladin, who managed to unite, under his own leadership, Syria and Egypt, to kick out the last of the Fatimids caliphs, mm. you know, the la- last Shiite, and, and turn Egypt Sunni, effectively, um, in its leadership as well as its population. And... So that's an incredibly important – and all the Christian writers then say the reason the Crusader states from the end of the 12th century are starting to fail is because Egypt is under control of Sunni uh, military leaders who align themselves with Syria. And now the Crusader states are, are surrounded. It becomes increasingly clear from the 12th century that if you want control of Jerusalem and the wider sort of world of what we now call Israel, Lebanon, Syria – You have to control Egypt. It's the richest bit. It's strategically incredibly important. Um, You need to control coastal cities like Damietta and Alexandria, and you need to have the wealth of of Cairo. And so there's this constant race to it. Now, when I first started looking at the Crusades, I I couldn't really get my head around, why they are they so obsessed with Egypt? But, of course, for for lots of reasons, sectarian reasons, economic reasons, um, geopolitical reasons, Mm -hmm. controlling Egypt is the absolute key. And it... You know, taking the wider view, the Romans, everyone's always known this, Romans knew it, Napoleon knew it, the British, you know, Suez, the British knew it. Everyone knows how important Egypt is. Um, and thing, the world doesn't change shape. That's what you've got to remember. The world doesn't change shape, and, and it's no surprise that the Middle East tortures us today. We call it the Middle East or the Near East. And it tortured them in the Middle Ages, and it tortured them in Roman times. It's the shape, it's literally the physical shape of the world.
1: Speaking of the shape of the world, you, you take the story out to up as far as the Baltic um, and again that's you know we, we tend to think of crusaders as in the in the uh, near east in the deserts and so on but but we also see them in your book in the forests and the yeah uh, the, the the miserable cold uh, climates of the north.
0: Could you perhaps tell us a, a little bit about the, uh, uh, the way you tell the story of the Baltic? Well one of the things I wanted to achieve in in this book was to show the you know not just diversity of people but like the plurality of places that were affected by crusading because when we think crusading obviously jerusalem is is comes to the forefront of our mind maybe the reconquista in you know in spain and portugal as we now call them Uh, but actually particularly from the beginning of the 13th century you start to see crusading all over the place and one of the, you know, the third great arena of crusading after the Near East and Spain and Portugal is the Baltic. what We now call Poland, well, Northeastern Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. Um, it goes back to the Second Crusade. The Second Crusade in the 1140s was a response on behalf of the, the princes of and kings of Western Europe to the fall of the County of Edessa uh, in modern Syria, towards Mesopotamia. And they tried to literally follow in the footsteps of the First Crusaders two generations previously. Now, at that time, in the 1140s, there were some German nobles in Saxony who looked around and said, I mean, do we really, really have to go to Jerusalem to fight the enemies of Christ? Because just over that river over there, there are lots of people who don't believe in Christ. These are pagan tribes of the Baltic. Couldn't we just, like, kill them and take all their land... (laughs) uh and wouldn't that be the same thing and so they appeal to St Bernard now we know St Bernard Bernard of Clairvaux the great sort of fixer of the time the man who'd written the rule of the Templars the friend of kings the sponsor of Pope Eugene III Bernard of Clairvaux uh, very plastic uh, and and nimble mind says yeah sure why not you know let's expand the Christian world up there you sure you could and he petitioned Pope Eugene III can you grant remission of sins you know this is the spiritual calculus of crusading can you grant remission of sins and crusader privileges to saxon nobles who want to just attack their neighbors and Pope, you yep tick fine and so from that point on that's called that's the wendish crusade so from the wendish crusade of the 1140s then there's a bit of hiatus but for, but you know under pope innocent the at the turn of the 12th to 13th century bang you know you've got crusading all over the place the Teutonic knights are set up outside the siege of Acre in 1191 it, uh, very quickly take up residence effectively in the Baltic and there's a perpetual crusade there what is it actually all about it's just about expanding the territory under control of German and Germanic lords and 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 setting up new Christian bishoprics there it's about this incredibly wealthy area which is so rich in farmland and in furs and in all the good stuff you want to trade and has you know waterways and forests to chop down wood I mean that's what it's about it's about either killing or... St Bernard used the phrase, uh, what should we do with these uh, pagans? They shall be converted or deleted, says St Bernard. Okay.
1: And, you know, we're living, this year especially, in times when you can see political decisions, say, over Brexit, having unintended consequences. Quite rapidly we're seeing this, but sometimes it takes decades for... Decisions to play out. But I think the one you mentioned there, that the decision to expand the nature of crusading played out in an interesting way. And, and again, you cover it really, really vividly, if rather grimly, with the appreciation that you could use this tool internally yep. against heretics. So yep. we have the origins of, of the Albigensian crusade and so on. Yep. Perhaps tell us
0: a bit about the, the, Alp, the, the fight against the heretics. Um, The papacy of Pope Innocent III, which is coterminous, I suppose, with the reign of King John in England. I mean, it's the turn of the 12th into the 13th century is a critical time in crusading. (coughs) Excuse me. Innocent sees the crusade not just as a sort of tool to attack predominantly Muslims, but as a tool to attack any enemy of the papacy, perceived or real. So, uh, this is Why we have the Fourth Crusade, which is allowed, although Innocent's quite cross about Mm. it. He's not that cross that they go and depose the Byzantine Emperor uh, and burn Constantinople. Yes, there's the Fifth Crusade of Damietta, which he sets up and doesn't live to see. But in southern France, the Crusade is permitted as a tool to go after Cathar heretics. Innocent, of course, is very concerned about heresy. He sees it as a threat to the internal um, security and cohesion of the Western Church. Rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly. I mean, Cathars are not a very big problem. They're sort of beatnik hippies, effectively, and vegetarians. I mean, there's not... like They don't have children. They don't have children. You know, this is not a a genuine threat to... um, It's not uh, an existential threat. Anyway, the the truth about, I think, when it comes out about the Albigensian Crusade... Um, a brutal, violent uh, campaign of destruction led by Simon de Montfort the Elder against supposedly Cathar towns. It's really a a sort of backdoor sponsorship of the Kingdom of France and the kings of France uh, securing once and for all their political control over the French South. It's a way to attack... Uh, Lords of dubious loyalty to the French crown in the south of France has given papal sponsorship, so it is a sort of i mean it's a it 's a crusade, but not in the way they say it 's a crusade it 's about um shoring up the power of kings only it 's happening in the south of France instead of uh, the eastern Mediterranean um or over the Pyrenees in Spain and portugal and it 's quite disgraceful yeah. I think yeah <laughs> the more you know I think. I sort of came to the Albigensian Crusade sort of like, well, this must have been a very dangerous thing, having all these heretics about, and came out of it like, this was a a total disgrace. Like, brutal, horrible, um, inexcusable, one-sided massacre of um, just harmless people conducted in the, in the under papal authority and from that point on really the the the, the wheels start coming off crusading yeah. because then it's like open season and you get to the, the, the stage where you've got crusades being preached against the holy roman emperor i mean there's a crusade preached against frederick ii Hohenstaufen, the holy roman emperor who cut a deal to get jerusalem back to the, the christian side and ends up having a crusade. Today, we give him the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm sorry, he arranged a power sharing in the Middle East, peaceful power sharing without a war. You'd give the guy a Nobel. Prize. No, he's excommunicated four times and has a cru- and dies with, with a crusade preached against him. This is nuts. Yeah, it's nuts. Yep. Um, and I, I, yeah. And I got quite an- animated by the 13th century in a way that's,
1: su- that's... possibly surprising. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that brings us to the end of the story, really, because the Reformation. One of the big, one of the big arguments of the Reformation, the, this, this crusade idea has just become a disgraceful, um, irreligious uh, project. So that's, that's a rather neat point at which I, I could turn to you and in, invite you to um, take the opportunity to ask Dan questions while we have him. So you'd like to gather your thoughts. We, we have a couple of microphones that are going to be circulated. There is there a hand there? Can I? Oh, I should have, oh, I should right. have alerted our, our microphone team a little bit earlier. Perhaps you could project, oh no, here we go, Yeah, here comes the mic. So we had, we had someone, would you mind, yeah, There's, can you see the gentleman there, with
0: like a microphone?
1: Uh, hello, uh, could it be argued that the first crusade was the only crusade that was moral in the sense that it had a specific purpose to help the Greeks uh, against the Turks and uh, get back Jerusalem?
0: It could be argued, but I I don't think very uh, effectively, whichever way you came at it, because in a sense, uh, the First Crusade is about... there's a clearly defined purpose for the First Crusade, but there's a clearly defined purpose for the Second Crusade, which is we're going to do exactly the same thing and we're going to take back Edessa, which has fallen to the perfidious Turks. And there's a clearly defined, you know, moral purpose to the Fifth Crusade or, you know, or the Third Crusade, which is Jerusalem's been lost to the, you know, to the Saracens. So um, I see, but I do see your point, uh, which is that everything after the first crusade is sort of like historical reenactment in a way, particularly the second crusade where it's literally let's follow in the footsteps of our fathers and that becomes almost more important than the end goal which is, uh, you know, with the second crusade the idea seems to be um, things are in a bad way, Uh, we ought to go and do something godly which is you know, harks back two generations. Two generations is always a good time to hark back to because it's just about in living memory, and it always seems like things were better two generations ago, whether they were or were not. Um, so, the Second Crusade is, is, you know, it's like historical reenactment. Um, it's like the Rolling Stones still being a band and pretending it's the nineteen seventies. Do you know what I mean? Uh, the but, I, but I think I think we can't be too cynical in looking back um, at this period and say that every that that people were doing this for, quote-unquote, the wrong reasons. Because in in every point of crusading, even though if our our judgment as historians is this was disgraceful and terrible, there were people participating who genuinely believed they were doing it for for godly and pure reasons. Just in the same way, if we want to utter the B-word, I have have arch-Brexiter friends who genuinely think they're doing the right thing. They're confused and wrong. However, that doesn't make them bad people. It just makes them confused and wrong people. And we shouldn't shun them, although maybe they should just be sort of... um... (laughs) Right, we'll we'll intercept that sentence and and invite another
1: question. Yeah, there's a gentleman there. Uh, thank you very much. Really enjoyed the conversation between you two. But I just wonder if what you've just said about Brexit. Oh, no. Uh, Why did I say it? No, but doesn't it show that you are kind of like, uh, you know, you're engagé. You've got a, you're, are you a dispassionate historian, you know, in the sense that you are convinced that you're correct about Brexit and you're perfectly entitled to think yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah. But are you bringing that attitude to the history of the Crusades
0: Am I bringing a, a sort of snowflake Remainer attitude to the history of the Crusades? I probably, look, this is, you know, you argue about this in history from the age, when you're studying it, from the age of 16 or 17 onwards. Can you be an objective historian who totally jettisons their own prejudices and wrong opinions and biases and uh, quirks and foibles and stupidities and, uh, you know, and so on and so forth? I could use any number of adjectives. No. You cannot be an objective because history is not a, a, an objective science. It is not physics. And even in physics, as we know from quantum theory, you cannot be an objective observer. It's called the observer effect. Uh, and, and so I don't think there's massive merit in pretend. No, the one thing you mustn't do is pretend. The one thing I mustn't do is say, I, the great historian, am totally objective and everything I say is, uh, is gospel truth. No. I am called Dan Jones, and you can easily learn about my prejudices by just talking to me for, like, five minutes. Uh, My name is in capital letters on the front of the book, uh, and as we said at the beginning, this is my take on the story. And I I think, uh, to quote the great Stephen Bochco, now dead, you know, who created NYPD Blue and L.A. Law, the great screenwriter, the the title of his autobiography was Truth is a Total Defence. And so long as you're honest about who you are and what where you're coming from I don't think you're pulling the wool over anyone's eyes and I don't think it makes you a bad historian Um, it makes you a historian that some people wouldn't want to read and I that's your prerogative don't like my what is it um, Shirley Jackson said you don't like my peaches don't shake my tree (laughs) something like that (laughs)
1: You touched on the enduring popularity of the crusades with the far right. Um, I was wondering if you had anything more to say on uh, any responsibility that uh, mm-hmm. we have as historians
0: on the one hand, and also uh, any methods. I mean, what what should we do about this, and what can we do about this? So, I just want to, yeah, sure. yeah, just
1: jump in there because, um, I mean, you, you, I want to hear from you on this as well, but, um, so I was involved in a discussion, because you, you'll be aware after Christchurch, the, the massacre, the, the, um, the, the perpetrator evoked Charlemagne, evoked the Crusades, and they had a, a rugby club in Christchurch called um, Crusaders. And they, before the matches, they, they would have these like faux uh, jousts and you know bought into all the crusading iconography. They're having to reconsider that.
0: and they well, they've to big, done you know? it now. They've decided, uh, the, so there's some debate in Christchurch about whether um, to continue to call, we shouldn't talk about rugby, they'll all leave, uh, <laughs> whether to call, the, to continue calling the Crusaders, mm. Crusaders. And they settled this week that they're going to continue to be called Crusaders, but they're not going to have the image of a Crusader with a sword anymore. Um, and that, I think we have to say that in, in Christchurch, it's their prerogative, it's their town, it's their massacre, it like, it, like by which I mean, this is a very sensitive subject that's for the people of Christchurch to decide. I think, um, and they've they've done so. I mean, if and I don't recommend you do. If you read the manifesto, that, that the perpetrator, the case is still at law, but the person being tried is Brenton Tarrant. Um, he was he had daubed, you know, Crusade eleven ninety one, you know he called one of his assault rifles uh, Turkefugger, the Turk Eater. Um, He, like many, many, many other far-right terrorists, let's call it by the name, uh, was obsessed with the Crusades. Equally, I was in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday this year, riding in Tuk Tuk near Gaul to go and get some beer, uh, and the Tuk Tuk driver turns around and says, have you heard what's happened in um, Colombo, no. Churches are blown up by suicide bombers. Hotels are blown up by suicide bombers. Bit scary. I was supposed to be in one of those hotels. Was blown up 24 hours later. Had it been 24 hours, you know, I'd, you'd be sitting talking to an empty chair. Um, my little girls would be dead, uh, and the perpetrators, the ISIS-aligned perpetrators of the attacks in Sri Lanka, of course. What are the? Their, um, when they took credit for it, they said, we have successfully attacked, ho, 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 citizens of the Crusader Coalition, that's all of us, by the way, uh, celebrating their infidel holiday. And so this is a long way of saying, yet yeah, you on the both sides, the alt-right and Islamist terrorists, obsessed by the Crusades. It's clear to see why, because it looks like a binary thing, if you don't study it very hard, that it's just Islam and the West at odds forever. George W. Bush did us no favours yeah. on the 16th of September 2001. This crusade, this war against terrorism, is going to take a while. I mean, you couldn't distill the message for Al Qaeda at the time better. You know, he misspoke. Okay, but like this was this is the entire crux of Al Qaeda propaganda from ninety eight onwards. Um, what should we do about this? The only thing I can't think you can do is buy my. is, um, <laughs> uh, is um, to continue like talk about what actually happened during the crusades. What happened during the Crusades was absolutely not that it was a simple case of world against world, and and you know, uh, what also happened during the Crusades was a bloody nightmare for nearly half a millennium that we, sh- we should not and do not want to repeat. Um, the counter argument to that is I don't think that alt right, the people who read the Daily Stormer and ha- and see you know a Templar knight and Deus Volt as the masthead, or people who read um, DaBik and uh, are well into blowing themselves up on public transport networks are going to listen um, but it's that doesn 't mean we shouldn 't try it's a wishy-washy argument, isn't it 's a wishy washy
1: argument isn 't it it 's still very valid um, well, you know we 're not we're, i don 't think our job is to persuade them but we we 're part of a culture that we influence and there 's a ripple effect and if we can if we can if our ripples can eventually take away uh, this uh, image of the crusader from the alt-right, that would be fantastic. And, you know, it might not influence the, the, the person with the gun, but it might influence the person designing a game based on the crusades to, to actually have sympathetic Islamic
0: characters or... You yeah, know, you're or right. of, you're, you're a more hopeful person than <laughs> I am, actually, and, uh, and you're right to be, and I'm glad that you're here <laughs> to temper my uh, increasing pessimism.
1: <laughs> thanks. We yeah, uh, Thanks very much for the talk. I really enjoyed it. Do you think it's do you find it's possible, given that you know conflict still exists in, in these parts of the world, uh to 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 read or write about the the crusades without modern concepts like uh, genocide, humanitarian intervention,
0: war crimes, uh etc.? Do you think it's possible to to, to... Would be influenced by the I mean no, for, the, for reasons that I ranted about a little a minute ago, that, you, of course, you, it's very hard to shed your prejudices. How do you write about Richard the Lionheart massacring, like, 2,500 people on the plane outside Acker uh, without saying, I think that was not a good thing? Like, we, today, you just say, well, today we would call that a war crime. You have to be clear, as I think I am in the book, when, if I ever used that sort of anachronistic language of saying, today we would say this... Um, I, but I have a suspicion that it still wasn't cool. Like, and, and people at the time were shocked by what Richard did. They didn't use the word war crime because, of course, there's, you know, the concept of a crime in war was different. A, cri- a war crime in the Middle Ages was not surrendering a castle when you were clearly defeated in a siege, and that you know, and that. So the war crime is kind of stood in its head because you're now allowed to be. It's permissible for the besieging the, the army to massacre uh, the, the people inside. Um, but equally, I, again, I don't feel a responsibility to um, to jettison all moral, all modern moral judgment, um, because why? Why? Why are we reading about this stuff if not for specifically for that interaction between ourselves today and people in the past, and to think about? Um, what this can tell us how it how it uh, feeds into our view of the own world you know i think as historians over i mean over my lifetime we've we become very obsessed with with apologizing for what we think or apologizing for having any modern sensibilities or preconceptions in a way that's unhelpful because you can never like we, you end up not saying anything and being afraid mm. to speak and as I, The older I get, the more I think, well, why are we doing this? You know, it's perfectly plain who we are and what we're like. And I think it's totally legitimate to write about history. Uh, and, and as I say, again, truth is total defence. As long as you're honest about who you are and what you're saying, you sh- it's fine. It's fine. Um, and I think we shouldn't shy away from looking at the Third Crusade and saying, you know what, today that would be totally out of order. In the 1190s, it was quite out of order. <laughs> um, go figure. Thanks. Um, I actually have someone towards the back, and
1: then yourself, and then to the right. So we'll go with the back first. and We might have to end it at those three, so hopefully you won't be too disappointed if you have a question.
0: This might be a change of tack, but I'm just curious to know... And thank you for the, for the lecture. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Um, how with this kind of forceful intercultural mingling, yeah. how it influenced Europe, because I, I think of like the Grail legends, Passaval, mm. how you end up with these stories of crusader knights going there, bringing back things, or yeah. marrying a, a, an Arabic princess, these kind of things. And I just find that it was, there was hope even then for things to start mixing in a positive way. Yeah, and, and uh, I think the story... Okay, so the story that um, one tends to tell of the Crusades, because uh, it's dramatic is the story of conflict. Actually, the history of these 400 years of people living in the Near East or in Spain and Portugal, as we call them now, or in the Baltic, is equally, if not more, a story about cooperation, trade and pragmatic uh, intermingling of cultures. Um, That's not very exciting uh, material for a narrative history, um, but we, I do try and feed it in and, and demonstrate. For, here's a good applied example Templars are, we tend to think of as the sort of, you know, the storm troop, the shock troops of the, uh, of the crusaders' side. And yet, how do we square that with Usaba um, um, Ibn Munki telling this story of how, you know, he's a great sort of traveler around the Near East, a Muslim, evidently. Uh, when he says, well, uh, Templars are my mates, when I go to Jerusalem and they're, you know, they've made Al-Aqsa Mosque their headquarters, they're good enough to clear out one of their chapels for me to pray to Mecca when I'm there. And in fact, he tells the story of some young Templar knights fresh in from Western Europe who try and kick him out while he's praying and the older, wiser heads who've been around in the Crusader Near East for a while restrain their fellow Templars and say shut up, sit down, this guy's our friend, let him pray to Mecca, we, we can happily coexist. You know, you, we could talk uh, for an hour about Frederick Hohenstaufen and Al-Kamil, you know, the great Holy Roman Emperor, Arab-speaking, Sicilian-born, uh, great sort of correspond, friend by correspondent of Al-Kamil, Saladin's nephew, Sultan of Egypt, with whom they broke, you know, he broke us this, this great deal to get Jerusalem back into Christian hands so the story is as much about cooperation and intermingling cultures exchange of ideas exchange of knowledge uh, as Mm. it is about conflict but of course you know I accept that people want to read about um, heads (laughs) being used as polo balls rather than people sort of shaking hands and I think um, Kingdom of Heaven grappled with this Yeah, yeah. and Kingdom of Heaven came in for a lot of
1: criticism by historians for anachronisms but I actually I've actually used it in, in class and The certain, I think that the spirit of it is is interesting and is connected to some of what the sources are saying. So it grapples with the need to have high adventure and, you know, trebuchets flinging rocks with um, an attempt to say, look, the the picture is people on the ground performing
0: agriculture, cooperated, yeah, and like yeah, Kingdom of Heaven, Ridley Scott actually tried. Like, and I think that counts for a lot in Hollywood. I worked on a show about Templars called Nightfall. Started with great intentions. The creators wanted to do, you know, let's get as close to reality as possible and then have some fantasy about the Holy Grail in there. Okay, that's kind of Hollywood. Sold it to the History Channel. History Channel imposed a head of a writer's room on them to guide the writing, who's, and I apologise for the language, whose watchword, which he used to use to me, the historical consultant, a lot, was, I don't give a fuck about history. (laughs) <laughs> right. So, I'd go into the writer's room and he'd say things like, hey, how, like, possible is it that there was a female Muslim assassin living in Paris in the 14th century? I'd go, well, I don't think we have one documented, actually. And he'd say, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking you. Is it possible? I'm like, well, all things are possible. And then he'd say, right, out the room, yeah, that's all I needed to know. And so you ended up like, you know, I watched this thing back and it was like, at one point... They were looking for the Holy Grail, which is obviously like a cup uh, in a box that people have been hiding. And eventually they to find it hidden in an orange tree in a monastery in the south of France. I'm like, Wait, what? <laughs> what? And you have Gina McKee coming on as the keeper of an orange. Oh, it's hidden in the orange tree. And they're like, give me kingdom of heaven every day. Because yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> this is totally stupid. So uh, Hollywood doesn't. Care about history uh, it doesn't it cares about story and like it has a totally like uh, reductive approach to or, or, you know, a lot of studio execs have a totally reductive approach to storytelling that is driven by what they think their audience can respond to they don't give a fuck about history and so whenever you see something that gets it like 35% right mm. that's taken a battle to get you to that stage yeah. so let's not be harsh on Kingdom of Heaven good yeah, yeah. I, I share that view. yeah thanks Thank you so much, Dan and Connor. Um, I have a question more for research and uh, methodology in your projects going forward. Because you started with
1: um, England with the Peasants' Rebellion and mm-hmm. then moved into the monarchy and then into the
0: Templars and then bigger picture into Crusade. Yeah. So with your next project, do you think that you're going to go back to something smaller, or are you going to keep expanding? No, I'm like the end stage of the sun dying, like <laughs> I, expanding, expanding, and burning everything in my path. Um, no, I'm getting bigger. I'm going to do one more history book. <laughs> At least. Uh, and you
1: to, were you tempted to reveal something to us there? That no, I was, I, was
0: so, I was thinking about like Jay-Z retiring, uh, but I might do it like three times. So, the excitement of the comeback is is ever present. Um, the next book is getting bigger. The next book is called Powers and Thrones, and it starts with the sack. You know, to go back to Gibbon, four hundred and ten AD, Alaric and Rome. You know, sack of Rome, and it proceeds to fifteen twenty seven, the sack of Rome, and it's sort of a big block history of the. It's like the the Middle Ages, but it's the it's okay. How did these succeeding powers, who dominated the West over the course of these thousand years, uh, do it? And what did they share? What were their similarities? So it's big, 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 big history. Um, the last sort of little book that I did was m- on Magna Carta, um, and I quite enjoyed doing that. But it was, it was. I, I'm, I'm sort of pulled towards uh, the epic, in, in increasingly in, in these books. Um, I do have a sort of cunning plan to go back to the the, the small, but I don't I don't think I'm not no, I can't tell you about it, but that, that it'll, it'll come through in a different way. Thanks. And our last question, then, the gentleman. I
1: guess. Uh, so, so. Hi. Uh, yeah. Just um, to what extent are we able to have an idea of the? how the demographics or the climate affected the economy and how that affected the events whether it's the effect of heat on troops or if you have lots of young men and not enough work for them to do that it makes it easier to get send them off somewhere to what extent does that affect the story those harder economic things affect the story as well or how how are we how much we able to Guess at.
0: Well, weirdly, and I'm not like trying to evade the question. I think Connor's actually better placed, given that this is your area of research. Yeah. That. yeah, so yeah you yeah. say something, and then I might say something.
1: Yeah. So I asked myself that, that question. That's a good, I think it's an interesting question. And the way I tackled it was to chart what we knew about patterns of um, outbreaks of famine, plague, against outbreaks of crusading. And lo and behold, it's a really strong correlation. So um, just before the first crusade there was a huge outbreak of ergotism um, giving people visions uh, as well as killing them um, just before the second crusade there was a terrible famine so the preachers who were going around Europe saying come to Jerusalem it's a land of milk and honey they're talking to scrawny desperate uh, farmers who who are more vulnerable to the message more inclined to believe it so Very, very strong uh, interconnections. Having said that, I I would be very careful not to be a climate determinist and say it's all down to big picture patterns because Bernard of Clairvaux, just one human being, could make such a massive difference uh,
0: to how the impact of the message comes. So let's take that one step further. The First is a good example because, as you say, there's there's a population that's kind of primed in lots of different ways for this. But with, like, then along comes Peter the Hermit, 1096. You know, Urban's preached, Peter the Hermit comes along, and this kind of incredibly charismatic, shabby demagogue wandering around the Rhineland with this uncanny ability to convince people to do something that's contrary to their best interests, like Dom Cummings and sackcloth, effectively, <laughs> you can imagine such a thing. Uh, uh, said I wouldn't do it again. Um, I think you're absolutely right. You have this this like conditions are right and then along comes someone and that for me is sort of like that's history right you know we've again one of the false dichotomies set up is between the great man theory of history and the sort of determinist theory of history I you know obvious obviously these two things play together you know you have things are just like kind of brewing and then along comes someone then the Letwin motion passes. Part. No, 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 no. We shouldn't do any more Brexit material. Um, uh, I, I, that's history, right? Right.
1: Brilliant. So, I think we we should show our warm appreciation of Dan's honesty no, thank and you humour. Thank you. humour.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter where we're at histfest.